0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film historian and curator Alicia Fletcher and Norm Wilner, senior film writer of Now Magazine and host and producer of the Someone Else's Movie podcast and the Now What podcast. When I started watching both of our movies today, I immediately thought about how once studios got a look at the box office numbers and accolades of Lord of the Rings, they started throwing out green lights for historical epics while hoping for green backs. However, our film guru guest today, Norm Wilner, pointed out to me that the trend goes even further back. And of course, he was right. Norm, what kind of risks are studios taking on when they greenlight these kinds of historical war epics, and how big do they have to hit to inspire more like them? Like we very rarely get a Lord of the Rings kind of movie.
1: Yeah. Well, the Lord of the Rings sort of supercharged the idea of epics uh, for a bit, but they had already been rolling out. Uh, it goes back to my, to my mind, both of these films, both Kingdom of Heaven and The New World are sort of rooted in the success of Gladiator the year before the Lord of the Rings came out, which was a blockbuster and an Oscar winner. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of Ridley Scott remaking the Fall of the Roman Empire with uh, with a couple of bigger well, more, with more methody actors, really, more than anything else, and and some terrible CG, which we're all willing to forgive because you know it was the <laughs> style at the time. But Gladiator came from Braveheart, uh, which was the 1995 Oscar monster and box office success from from Mel Gibson, which was basically just Spartacus. But it was proof that the old action epic formulas from the 60s, from the roadshow era of giant 70 millimeter eye popping. Uh, exclusive engagements and audience grabbers would bring people back to the movies. And of course, Braveheart and also Rob Roy, the same year came from the last of the Mohicans when Daniel Day-Lewis and Michael Mann made their wilderness epic. And it's a very different, like it's a much more intimate action movie. It doesn't have giant action sequences the way that Braveheart would bring those back. But what that did was every major male actor who wanted to be an action star in the early nineties, just pointed at the last of the millions and said, get me one. (laughs) <laughs> I want to do that. He can do that. I can do that. If and I so, can wear
0: a loincloth and paint my face, I am right there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: That that film
2: scarred me when my parents showed it to me, when they rented it. And around the time that it had come out, like I remember I had probably never seen a Michael Mann film. That would have been my first wow. at like 10 years old. Uh, and it, it really disturbed me. Like it's, it's got some, I haven't watched it since, but I can remember so many visuals of the young woman jumping off the waterfall and all this like,
0: Traumatizing. Traumatizing. Yeah, it's, Uh, it's
1: not the sweeping romance people think it is.
0: No, this well, one of ours is no. intended to be a sle- sweeping romance, and also fails at that as well, which we're going to be discussing about today. Di- I disagree.
2: We're going to. I know, into a fight. I know. It's
0: okay. The fisticuffs are on, but they're genteel fisticuffs. Uh, this is our first episode of 2005, and coming from 1997, one of the biggest talking points we found was that that is a huge turning point of practical effects meets CGI, and now we're in 2005, and CGI is really going to be facilitating um, a lot of these epic films. You see a. Bunch of it in Kingdom of Heaven, but because of Lord of the Rings, where they taught like armies of people how to fight with swords and, you know, they had armors on set, there seems to be this like reclaim of, okay, we went too far in the CGI direction. How do we now come back to like actually watching people smack each other and fall down? What do you think, Norm? Is that an accurate assessment? I think
1: there's definitely something to it. It's I think it's also because the CGI stuff in Lord of the Rings, the stuff that isn't Column, is very clearly artificial. Uh, yeah. I think at the time I was complaining that two towers just evolved into software fighting software.
0: My personal favorite part is the where uh, Orlando Bloom goes sliding down on his little shield as he's like firing his arrows. And I was like, that was for the kids. Thank you very much.
1: It was. But I mean, you know, when you think about it, you're coming five and a half hours into a movie and at that point and the kids are falling asleep. So it's nice to have something they can identify with if they're watching it back to back. (laughs)
2: And you need to make a toy where potentially Legolas is on like some sort of ramp and the toy just yeah. shoots down and does that. Like that's a that's definitely a, a shot that's set up. Now with boarding action,
1: Legolas. <laughs> I would buy that. I would have bought that when I was ten. <laughs> the thing that Jackson does really well and always has, like even back as far as his his horror movies in the in the eighties and nineties is sweeping ridiculous camera movements that just pull you along into the action. And he replicated those in the Lord of the Rings, but he couldn't do it practically it was just impossible so sometimes you have these artificial helicopter crane shots through through masses of battling orcs and trolls and, and elves and it just pulled me out every time in the theater thinking oh yeah okay this is this is just digital there's no way you can do this uh, it's like the Uruk-hai chant thing he recorded the audio in a football stadium in Wellington I think which is just a delightful story. He got the entire crowd of a game <laughs> mm-hmm. to chant Uruk high chants
0: because it <laughs> Something sounds to tell real. The grandkids.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, but it sounds real. Yeah. It actually does yeah. read as, as an event that's happening. And then the the image is just this totally artificial digital uh, monster mash. So they pulled back from that. And, and this is no disrespect to Weta. They were doing the best they could at the time. You know, the digital effects took a long time to become as polished and indistinguishable from reality as they currently are. Although you can still tell when someone doesn't use them properly. But as a result, I think there was uh, a push back to... It was also... The other thing I always forget is it was incredibly expensive. Um, CG is cheaper now. It's still really expensive. Proportionally, it's easier and cheaper to do uh, if you're making a big movie. At the time, if you wanted to make giant battle scenes, it would cost you half your budget potentially. So you either had to make a really expensive movie or justify it practically. And so I think Ridley Scott, certainly he's a tactile filmmaker. He likes building things and making them real. And after Gladiator got knocked around for its CG, I think he clearly wanted to make something that was just more people in armor walking around. And, And to do that, you end up with duels and individual battles and confrontations with giant armies waiting in the background, which is also what Braveheart did. Um, You know, in the end, it always comes Mm -hmm. down to Mel Gibson punching somebody or being punched. That's his deal. So that became the blueprint.
2: And with Gladiator, can you you refresh my memory? A lot of the CGI, I remember it being, you know, very touted and very like, wow, how revolutionary is the Coliseum Mm -hmm. scenes. All of the crowd are you know, CGI. And then it seemed to be very um, impressive. And today when you watch it, it looks oh, yeah. really bad. So it is kind of fascinating with, you know, Kingdom of Heaven that, and I didn't know this before doing research, that Ridley Scott's very close friends at the with the uh, King of Morocco at that time. And so the King of Morocco uh, basically loaned him yeah. thousands of militia members. And so you're not getting those CGI people in this film. You're actually getting a bunch of real Moroccans who are both playing the um, for and against <laughs> Jerusalem. Like they would switch costumes halfway through to then be the other side of the battle, which I find fascinating. And if you, you know, we're going to talk about kingdom of heaven probably with uh, some caveats, but I will say that the battle scenes uh-huh. were pretty phenomenal. And that's something that, Ridley Scott is carried forward in all of his filmography, including his
0: most recent, um, well, not House of Gucci, (laughs) Battles and House of Gucci, but more specifically, the the last duel. All right, that having been said, let's get into our first movie, because you'd think after turning in stone-cold classics like Alien, Blade Runner, and Thelma and Louise, and Oscar darlings like Black Hawk Down and Gladiator, Ridley Scott would have earned his carte blanche from studio meddling. Sure, his career is dotted with some clunkers, like Hannibal and I recently revisited Black Rain. Oh, boy. But when you've been making movies for five decades, there's bound to be some misses. Ridley Scott, however, didn't get a final cut on his interpretation of the Crusades, Kingdom of Heaven, a movie that, to me, seems to exist because Scott looked at Lord of the Rings and said, hold my beer and send over Orlando Bloom. I say this knowing full well that Ridley loves himself an Epic, as he's proved in years before. I'm looking at you, disturbingly moist Gerard Depardieu in 1942, The New World, and after. Did anyone even see Exodus, Gods and Kings? Like Blade Runner, there are two versions of this movie out in the world, and one has been disowned by the filmmaker. Full disclosure, I only watched the one available on Disney+, Plus, which I believe is the theatrical cut, yes, knowing what correct. I know. Alicia, which version did you see? Because I know Norm has seen both because he is a film trooper.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've seen both. So, um, my first okay. experience of this film, I, I didn't see it in theaters when it came out, and I'm happy because that means the first experience of this film I had was the, the director's cut, the cut that Ridley Scott remade, um, which is much longer. I believe it clocks in at 194 minutes, um, versus like I think the Disney plus version is two hours and 15. So I had seen that version and really loved the film. Like just seeing it, I wasn't aware there was a different version. Now what I did is same as you, Becky for this podcast. I watched what's on Disney plus and I am horrified. Okay, <laughs> Horrified, <laughs> but it's such i I'm hoping, I think we will have a really interesting conversation because I've never seen a director's cut be so different from the theatrical cut. And the idea that Disney Plus is, um, well, Disney in general, because this is a Fox film. It was produced for Fox. It was not produced for Disney, but of course, Disney owns Fox. So this is why we have it on something like Disney Plus. The idea that Disney Plus is just slapping this on there in such an inferior version where you have full subplots, full characters, including um, Ava Green's character's son, completely cut out. So the story makes no sense (laughs) whatsoever. And there's no character motivation. Um, I am, I'm, shocked and baffled. And I'm sorry, Becky, I feel like you would maybe have enjoyed this more if you saw what Ridley Scott really wants us to see. Um and this is his most ultimate like transgressive director's cut, I feel like he has he's gone back and re-edited everything, right? We get the alien version that has extra scenes that I'm not a huge fan of because I think it kind of takes away the mystery of the alien. Oh yeah. Um yeah, definitely. And, and but then this I'm just like, oh my God, no, I see, I see his line of thinking. But then I'm also like, yeah, of course, making a film for for Fox, you're not going to be allowed to make a three hour and fourteen minute film. <laughs> what were you thinking?
1: The the fascinating thing is he did make it, right? Like yeah. that's yep,
2: that's and showed it to Fox.
1: These stories always fascinate me because, you know, it's like Kenneth Branagh going off and making Hamlet and shooting the entire play and just not telling Castle Rock that that was his plan all along. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then starting to
1: talk about, oh, yeah, we shot the whole play. I mean, obviously it'll come out. It's in 70 millimeter. It was incredibly expensive. They knew what was going on, but he had said he was going to deliver a two and a quarter hour movie because that back in the days of film was the magic window of, I think, seven reels instead of eight. Uh, so yeah. you didn't have to spring for another reel, which would, at the time would inflate the cost of an individual print by hundreds of dollars.
2: And you could pl- pack cineplexes with more films per day, because as soon as you have a three-hour-plus movie, then you're
0: taking away from other ticket sales for other titles.
1: Exactly. Three three shows max. They did
0: put in an intermission for Hamlet, so you couldn't go get more snacks. So they did make their money. <laughs> My understanding of—no, but that, that
2: intermission for Hamlet is just on the VHS. I don't think that was a theatrical No, interest. it is, oh,
0: I, is—as okay. uh, someone who saw Hamlet three times in the theater, because I— I do not think you understand how much I had a crush on Ken Branagh at the time. (laughs) There was an intermission. Yeah, I remember
1: (laughs) an intermission too. I also remember seeing it in one of the most uncomfortable theaters in Toronto.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. well I'm going to bring us back into Kingdom of Heaven and I want to start us out by talking about uh, the battle scenes because I think those battle scenes are some of the best I've ever seen. Those siege towers are awesome and that Ridley Scott storyboarded it and that he storyboarded it by basically making a graphic novel comic book and passing it out to people and going this is what it looks like. How else could you do this?
2: Yeah, I mean he went as far to, this is filmed, a lot of it's filmed in Spain, um, standing in for parts of France and standing in for um, Jerusalem. There's also a lot of shots in Morocco. But, uh, you know, for for some of the buildings like castles and things like that that he needed to be um, France, he hired like Spanish artisans who were still using the techniques that were used for building thatched houses in the 12th century like that was just a craftsmanship that still existed and so he's going to that extent for for buildings that appear in the background like not even like prominent so this is a little bit of a like james cameron on titanic making every white star line prop even when you don't see it on camera he's kind of going full ups obs- ocd um obsessive with with everything that you see in these battle scenes including these towers which are really interesting that he did have built did blow up which i mean that's kind of the climax of the disney plus version and it's really effective for all the reasons both you and norm were talking about becky that it's not cgi like there's some cgi in this but the scenes that aren't cgi in the battle um and i really felt the blood spray i really felt like the sepsis setting into most of these wounds (laughs) Um, We have a character who has um, leprosy. There's a little bit of a like Lon Chaney, Phantom of the Opera reveal that I was fascinated by. And this is a character played by Edward Norton who's uncredited because you only see him in a mask. It's Edward Norton doing his best like um, Marlon Brando voice kind of from like Doctor of Island Moreau. It's very
1: confusing. (laughs) Come forward. I'm glad to meet Godfrey's son. He was one of my greatest teachers it's not method acting as we understand it but it's the sitting around thinking well i guess his tongue would be swollen and then just going with it
0: yeah yeah he didn't want to be credited because he wanted to keep the mystery of who the character was but i'm like we're in the age of the internet (laughs) like we can look this up almost immediately to find out where you were in the world and where you're being clicked by the paparazzi he also
2: has a very
1: distinctive voice
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, My and the mask looks like him. They made the mask to look very That's Edward Norton. Like my guess is, I'm sure he he and Scott had this idea that he would be it would be shrouded in mystery you would never know it's Edward Norton. Um, and I think Fox was probably like, "Excuse me, like Edward Norton from Fight Club." This is like a point where we can, you know, absolutely an American History Acts like we can market this, and I'm sure they refused um, to allow him to be uncredited. So he is in the end titles, um, but. I can't remember the complication. It's like only on the DVD versions or something like that and not the theatrical version actually said what actor played it.
1: Yeah, it's probably Weird. a union thing. It's always a union yeah.
2: thing. It's a, that's a good point. Always a union thing. That's a great explanation <laughs> yeah. for everything.
0: I, I want to bring us into the idea of, uh, because it, it's become very relevant now with House of Gucci and The Last Duel, talking about Ridley Scott and accents in movies where she sets in countries that are not America <laughs> yeah. or the UK. And I think that it's really interesting to me that he's like, I just need to get every grizzled white character actor from the UK. Jeremy Irons is in this, Liam Neeson. Is this and this and have them perform do you guys have a feeling about that like does that bother you that orlando bloom is playing a frenchman
1: i think we need to start off with the caveat that ridley scott thinks all of his ideas are great
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. every
1: time <laughs> And he's really, very
2: pleased with himself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. He
1: thinks every movie he's made is the, the, that interview that came out with him just as uh, house of Gucci was hitting yes. where the writer, the interviewer whose name escapes me is just listing his films and, and Scott's answer to all of them is great movie. Great movie. It's like, yeah. dude, no, I saw Prometheus. I saw alien Cover. You can't do that. <laughs> no. But, but he also in the space of a month or six weeks or however much time was between the release of the last duel and house of Gucci, reversed himself completely on the accent issue, because with The Last Duel, he was saying, of course, Ben Affleck has his own accent. They're not really speaking Engl- French. Uh, they're really speaking French. They're not really speaking English. What difference does it make? And mm-hmm. he's right. It shouldn't make a difference. Uh, it is perfectly fine. I just saw the tragedy of Macbeth and mm-hmm. uh, Denzel Washington does not affect a Scottish accent because he shouldn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that would not work. Even if he got it perfectly right, no one would accept it. And so the Americans speak in American accents. The British actors speak in their own accents, and it's perfectly fine. It's Shakespeare. We're used to seeing different interpretations. Here, yeah, um, you know, just as in my favorite example is is Doctor Zhivago, where everyone's speaking Russian. The um, the street signs are, are Cyrillic, but the the actors are speaking English because what is the point? They're not trying to affect Russian accents because that would be silly. Um, so with uh, with Kingdom of Heaven, as in the last duel, the actors use the vo- the Well, I guess Norton kind of affects a British accent, doesn't he? A little bit. I was wondering if he was trying to match somebody else. Because sometimes that happens. There'll be an accent corruption between actors in a given thing. So maybe he's trying to be, since he's Neeson's kid, he's trying to be a descendant somehow.
0: Hmm, that's I point. think he's trying to make himself less posh. Is what I think he's doing because also- he has that very like schoolboy, like uh, a public school sort of accent, which doesn't really work when you're playing this like blacksmith. scrappy blacksmith. Yeah. I don't know. Let's let's talk about Orlando Bloom for a second here because I am not a Bloom fan. My sister had a huge crush on him when everything came out. Um, he uh, he never really did it for me, mm. and I think part of it is for me he is a cipher of an actor. He's very good at you projecting yourself. Onto him and going, yes, I want to be that swashbuckler. And it seems like they used him number one because he's very attractive, and number two because in Lord of the Rings he actually learned how to use a sword. So you're mm-hmm. you know figuring out exactly what that looks like. And he has this Errol Flynnian quality to him that's very. Um, and that he's drunk and having sex with fourteen year olds all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is with Katy Perry, so I don't know. Uh, but, um, but it's very um, it's very classic Hollywood in that kind of like um, there's a vapidity to it, but. Still swashbuckling, I mean, it's why he's perfect for Pirates of the Caribbean. But I think um, Hollywood then didn't know what to do with him after we stopped making these movies. Like, he really isn't in that much that isn't voiceover now. Do you know what I mean? That's interesting.
2: He's, He's a pretty face to look at. He was very iconic hot in the early 2000s. And keep in mind, in 2004, so there's a year prior to this, he made Troy. So there's a real, like, kind of confluence, I think, between Troy and Kingdom of Heaven. You know, I I don't, we're not mean on this podcast. I I did read a review of this film that kind of referred to his role in this as, like, he's holding the fort for a better actor. And he's passable. That's actually a very mean thing to say. But uh, he's passable, but he doesn't improve the film. And I think, you know, it's not for us to speculate why he's not in more. I think it's just his moment has passed or he's made a a professional choice not to be in a lot. But he was Legolas. He did have a lot of girls buying that action figure, um, including myself, girls who would not normally buy action figures, getting their little <laughs> Legolas because that was like very hot in 1999. Uh, and I think that's just kind of a carryover to this film. I don't think Ridley Scott is always brilliant at casting. I think if you go through his filmography, there's a lot of questionable um, performances that haven't helped his films. I, I don't want to focus so much on like Orlando Bloom for Kingdom of Heaven, because he definitely doesn't, Improve the film, but there's a lot. Like, was there anything, Becky, that you did like about this film?
0: Other, than- oh, I like the battle. The battle mm-hmm. scenes are fine. Um, I, I, knowing that there's a bigger plot line for Eva Green Huge. makes me curious about the theatrical Huge. cut because in in the or sorry about the Directors. um the director cut because in the theatrical she is giving nothing to do. Like she basically she sleeps with him and you're like why? And then she wants to make him king and you're like why? And it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So it adding and then I read a bit and how I figured out I watched the theatrical cut is they're like, oh, the moments where she's with her son are heart wrenching. And I was like, She has a son? Yes. <laughs> and I had so she no plays idea what Queen was going on.
2: Sabella who um, is the sister to the leper king uh, in this film played by Edward Norton. She has a horrible husband named Guy to something. I'm sorry, I cannot recall. <laughs> Guy, let's just say. Uh, bad marriage. And then in the director's cut, the way that Ridley Scott meant it, she has a son who is showing signs of leprosy as well. Um, and the son would be the rightful heir to the throne when her brother dies. That complicates every, uh, every motivation that she has in the film. And when you take that son character out. And I, I don't think this. there's, um, she does ultimately poison her son to save him from the dismal pain and, and life that he will have as a leper that her brother has had to endure. Uh, it changes all of her political motivations. So she has, she's playing a lot. It's very succession. She's playing a lot of different parties and she's playing a lot of different sides. And so she's a complex politician in the director's cut. And in the theatrical cut, she's just like Crying for no reason, none, none of her motivations for backing her husband Ghee makes sense without the son being there. She's, yeah, she's a prop in the,
1: in the theatrical cut. Yeah, she, she barely try, yeah. she barely functions. And I would actually, b- before we get too far into Eva Green, who is tremendously good in the director's cut, in the, yes. in the performance she is actually giving makes perfect sense from scene to scene. But also, you just understand the strength of the character and the and the pressures that she represents every time the character wanders into frame. In the theatrical cut, she just looks like she showed up and she did because there was a whole other scene that we didn't see that she's just emerged from. Um, I would yeah. say the same about Bloom, though. Like, he it's a thankless role, too. Like, the alien is, is just the like they think he's Luke Skywalker structurally, he's the right person in the right time with the right skills to do one thing. And it's not Bloom's fault that the character has no depth or dimension, but I did find it more. Interesting to watch him in the longer version, just because you can see him thinking here and there that he doesn't belong. The character starts to feel outmatched. And especially once you realize how much Sybilla is doing behind the scenes that he's unaware of, that does directly affect him. He seems more like, or he feels more like a puppet or a pawn in the longer version whereas the theatrical cut just says look at this guy isn't he great and you keep saying yeah. not really and in the yeah he's,
0: it's like in Jurassic World where they keep telling you how cool Chris Pratt <laughs> is but you're like i don't i don't see it can you please show me how cool yeah. he is rather than tell me i
1: mean that's fair in almost every movie it's just like no that's chris pratt No, no, he's an action hero. No, no, he's he's cool. It's Chris Chris Pratt. I just saw him drop his (laughs) wallet. Like he's, he kicked it under a rock. It's not his (laughs) fault, but that's not working. But Bloom is like he's. I think he knows his character is outmatched, and that hesitancy that got cut out of the shorter version disarms the character in our understanding of him. So the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, this guy's a black hole of charisma. He's not doing anything. He's just a. He's at the mercy of fate. From scene to scene, oh, I happen to be the son of this guy. I happen to go on this quest. And in the longer version, there are moments where he just seems to be struggling with that same thing. So at least his casting makes more sense.
2: Yeah. I mean, so much of the longer version comes down to the theme of religious hypocrisy. And, you know, this, this, when this film was released, it, you know, 2005, it's not that long after 9 11. um, And nothing has really changed, unfortunately, with um, relations with Muslim countries. But like a lot of, there was a lot of concern that because, the Muslim culture was portrayed positively in this film that it would ignite um, terrorism. Like It's ridiculous arguments when you read them today but uh, so much of the film is about religious hypocrisy and that gets cut out in the theatrical version and becomes a a sword and shield um, love story that does not work. So I don't know Becky, I feel like you're going to get mad but I think you have to watch (laughs) the three hour and 14 minute Ugh, but it, it, it is a different film. I've, I can't think of another example where a director's cut and a theatrical cut are so dissimilar. Like, there's, we have a lot of director's cuts for Ridley Scott, especially. It's always just added on scenes. It's never like the entire point of the film has changed.
1: Yeah, I'm trying I can't to think, think of, of another example. There is some... Um, well, I mean, obviously... Spartacus, like the films that this is inspired by directly. There are missing yeah. scenes in Spartacus that do clarify things, but they don't change the direction of the film as this one does. They no. don't reshape your understanding of crucial. They just add
2: some wonderful homoeroticism that yeah. I'm there for and wish had I had seen when we watched it in grade five. Yeah.
1: yeah. And a guy gets his <laughs> arm cut off. That's awesome. Yes. I would maybe but, argue Lawrence of Arabia, not yeah. just because it's my favorite film, but because that, yeah. that, um, That director's cut, that restoration is a radical reconfiguring which i guess is the only way i've seen it
2: i've only seen it in 70 at cinematech ontario so that would have been that cut i don't Yep. yep. i'm really ignorant of what the original roadshow would have been um back in the day in the 60s
1: it was similar but it moved too quickly it just it just interesting leapfrogged past a couple of key moments of development to just give you a context for o'toole's performance and for the character of t.a lawrence kingdom of heaven yeah i mean it does the same for for eva green although it more than makes us understand her, it makes us feel for her, which yeah. just isn't possible in the theatrical cut. She's just yeah, she
2: a, poisons her son and you have to watch that. Like, it's incredible.
1: She's giving it. Like, it's a real performance. She doesn't undersell anything. Her. Oh, God, and her, her tendency <laughs> to go big really works here.
0: Yeah. Having said that, it makes sense that she refused to do any press for this once she saw the theatrical cut, yeah. when she saw how much was cut out. She, she refused to go on the publicity circuit, which makes sense. And she also said it was in solidarity with Ridley, which, you know, that's a great way to get more work. So I completely understand. <laughs> yeah.
1: And Scott was apologizing for it on the press tour, which yeah. I think is the only time he's done that. And it's just said, oh, we cut an hour to this movie. I don't like it anymore. Which again, kind of a dick move, but <laughs> not totally unjustified in this case. I think, He he hinted at a longer cut of gods and kings, but that's never surfaced and I'm fine with it. Because the, the version we have, it's two and a half hours long. It's terrible, and I don't know that there's a point in making it. Lo- I don't think that one can be made any better by making it longer.
2: I would like to see a four-hour House of Gucci. I want to see everything <laughs> that was cut out. <laughs> like I want more Versace. I want more Tom. For I mean, I'm kidding. I say this in jest. I don't want that.
1: <laughs> you're gonna make it happen. You're gonna conjure it just by saying so.
0: Is this your Christmas wish? <laughs> Is this what you're gonna burn it on? <laughs> Not goodwill toward men. You're like four-hour-long oh, House of man, Gucci. That's I what I want know. for the world. I don't know.
1: Oh. So <laughs> Gene Siskelman said that there are some movies you watch and all you can think of is I would rather watch the same running time of the actors having lunch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is that what my dinner with Andre was? <laughs> that was I think that's brutal. the ideal, right? <laughs> all right. I'm taking us away Sorry. from House of Gucci. Please. I mean, it's <laughs> technically relevant. germane
1: with Ridley Scott and all. And yes, another one great. that I don't think is going to get a longer cut because I can't imagine as, as great as he thinks all of his movies are. I can't imagine him wanting to revisit that anytime soon.
0: Well, I want to bring us to a character actor that um, continued on with Ridley Scott, who I really like his work. Now, I'm like, where do I recognize him from? And that's Ghassan Massoud, who went yes. on um, to yes. be in a ton more of his stuff. MVP He's uh, of one of the film. main characters. Exactly. He's also in uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, which, you know, maybe I'll watch it just for him because he's really something special in this. And then he went on to do like Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Like he's, he then becomes like the the same kind of, he's got a great look for this kind of action star. And I really, I I like him a lot. Mm -hmm. I like his performance and I like how... Um, anchored he is, and it's uh, it's nice to see a character who's Syrian not fly off the handle and just play a yeah, you know, straightforward. I am just trying to do what's best for my folks. And you he, know what I mean. He I'm into is it.
2: One hundred percent more fleshed out in the longer version has oh, yeah. more scenes that are okay. really riveting. Um, and so I don't know, Becky. I think you got to do it. I think you got to <laughs> three hours fourteen minutes, and we'll re-record
0: this episode. And- <laughs> In my day, which I have. I don't know. I feel like it's probably best that I came into this that not having seen both versions because yes. now I can be the, the audience surrogate of like, guys, I have no idea what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. All right. That having been said, let's go into a movie where I did watch one. I watched two of the three versions just to see what was going on oh, in this one. Wow. Uh, we're going to be talking about the new world. And uh, that's coming up after the break.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Terrence Malick isn't for everyone. With his dreamy imagery and narration and atypical storytelling, but he is an art house darling a Persephone of sorts emerging every few years from development hell to deliver us an ethereal film that will simultaneously entrance and confound. Before Malik released The New World, his last film was 1998's The Thin Red Line, which shares a lot of similarities with our film today. And even though that was both a commercial and a critical success, as almost all his films have been, as we mentioned before, this was another case of the studio altering the film from its original version for something they deemed more palatable for a wider audience. Norm, do you want to walk us through the plot of the New World, one of the three, before we kind of try to get into what they all are? Yes, Norm. Please
2: walk us through the
0: plot. Well,
1: (laughs) you you know, there is a plot in the New World. There is structure and an A to B to C progression, and that is the experience of of Pocahontas and the Iroquois as the uh, English colonists and settlers arrive in what will eventually become America. Um, That is the logline that is the plot of the new world. In, in execution, of course, it's nothing like that at all because Malik doesn't tell linear stories. He creates these intuitive experiences of what it would have been like to be on the ground at the time and, and just exist with them. His thing is to just glide along and, and chase a moment. And that can be uh, incredibly clumsy in some cases, but more often than not, he finds the thing he wants to show us and and puts us into the headspace of the people in, in, in these worlds that he builds for, for, for the movies. Um, took a long time, I have to admit, coming back around to liking The Thin Red Line and The New World. I, mm-hmm. I found them both incredibly self-indulgent the first time through uh in 1998 and 2005 respectively and uh, we can talk about the various experiences i've had of of the new world because i've seen <laughs> all three cuts because i was around for all of them yeah. the um the 150 minute version was screened for critics in toronto but not released in theaters here it just it in between are seeing it for tfca consideration so it would have been like the first week of december at the very latest and the release at christmas he cut another 15 minutes out of it and it wasn't the studio. It's Malick who just keeps cutting, who just keeps working his movies over and over again. Uh, and I think somehow he has a sweet spot of three hours and no one will let him have that running time. So he just keeps coming. He keeps fighting against it and coming back to it. Um, I mean, the tree of life at two and a half hours is pretty much perfect, but the longer cut is by no means bad. It's just mm-hmm. more. Uh the Thin Red Line is three hours long and it's it's exactly what it should be. Um, a Hidden Life is exactly three hours long and it's exactly what it should yeah. be. The New World wasn't three hours long until 2016, 10 years later, with the Criterion release when he finally restored his cut. And that's exactly what it should be. And the shorter versions, by shorter, I mean two and a quarter and two and a half <laughs> hours, the shorter versions are fighting against the rhythms that he already knows are right. And you can always feel when he's cutting something for someone else. I mean, their studio imposed cuts, but the studio never took it away from him. He just kept delivering different versions and they kept releasing them because New Line honored that. Uh, But it wasn't until the Criterion 4K restoration that he got to make the movie, he got to create the movie he'd always had in mind. And that movie is this strange, beautiful story of alienation. It's about people who don't belong in the places they are, finding ways to contribute um, what happens with John Smith, Cap- uh, Colin Farrell's character, who, you know, I guess, first of all, we should roll back to the Disney Pocahontas and say that that, yes. <laughs> that is not this movie. And people who are surprised that they don't immediately speak each other's language or sing to each other, thanks to the magic tree. You can do a report on Pocahontas from Disney and you can do a report on, Dis- on uh, Pocahontas from Malik. And in both cases, your teacher will mark you wrong because <laughs> neither <laughs> of those is accurate. But what Malik is getting to in his film is how it felt. Not what happened, but how it felt to people. There's a scene where, and the oh, psychology of it. Yeah, well, and the emotional reality of being completely foreign uh, and surrounded by people who don't, not only don't speak your language, but don't look like you, don't dress like you, don't act like you. And we get it from John Smith's perspective at first. But then gradually you realize that Pocahontas has been experiencing this exact thing all along the more time she spends with him. And the, the focus very subtly, almost, I hate the word ineffable, but this is where it's appropriate, inevitably shifts to her. Mm-hmm. And and Koryanka Kilcher has been at the center of the film the entire time. Uh, she's always around, even when you don't expect her to be. She pops up here and there in the backgrounds of shots when when it's supposed to be focused on, on the English. And gradually you understand that her experience of this is at least as important as as the Westerners who think they're Westerners. She's actually more Western because those people were further west than, than England. But there's this contradiction of, of who belongs where and, and who belongs to whom that rolls yeah. through the entire film and that Malik explores. I, I just rewatched the longer cut last night and or two nights ago, sorry. And I'd forgotten just how much Colin Farrell gets to do in the scenes with when he's surrounded by the indigenous people like he is projecting caution but friendliness and cooperation he's always helping people he's always doing something to ingratiate himself even further which makes it even more tragic that we know where all of this is going and i think that's yeah. something floating throughout the film as well
2: it's so interesting i mean obviously for becky and my generation pocahontas was very much in our childhood um sure. and there is a way that Terrence Malick plays with the Disneyfication of that story by casting Irene Bedard, who was the voice of the animated Pocahontas, as Koryanka, Kilcher's mother in this film that you only see. So all this film is obviously insular um you know, monologues, basically, like hearing the interior thoughts of its characters, mainly three of them. But obviously, Koryanka, Kilcher's character, is the most important. And so you hear her talk. You never meet her mother necessarily. We see her on screen. She's remembering her memories of her mother. Mm -hmm. She's having a dialogue with her mother, trying to process everything around her with um, her mother's life, which wouldn't have included, you know, the English coming over and it's just so there's so much so much nuance in this film and there's so much that terrence malick is doing that i did i didn't see the first time like i have had to watch this film it's like oh, a, yeah. an onion you just keep peeling back the layers to the point where i really really love this and it was a a problematic film for me when i first saw it um, probably around 2006 2007 but i wasn't prepared for it and it's crazy to think this is only his fourth feature the gap that he took between days of heaven which is 78 and the thin red line which is 90 20 years And so it was such a big deal. And I'm sure, Norm, you can talk to this. It was such a big deal when this came out in 2005. Because, you know, 98 to 2005 is an unusual gap in a filmmaker's career, but not unusual for Terrence Malick, who had done it even longer. And now we have a new film from him every year that people are very (laughs) angry about. And I I watch them all, and I love them all. I'm, like, probably a Terrence Malick apologist. But I don't feel like I need to apologize for The New World, because when you watch that longer cut... And I've never seen the other cuts, to be honest. Um, uh-huh. Or I guess I've seen the 150 minute. Uh, uh, somehow I would have seen that. I, don't, I think Cinematech did it back in like 2008 or something like that. Yeah, that would have been um, the print they
1: had, right? I mean, that yeah, would have been what have was have available been, here. Yeah.
2: That's true. That would have been the print. It's it's so it's so complicated. There's a lot about this film that's problematic. Um, the, we should just say right now, Koryanka Kilcher, who very prominent actress now. She, I was looking at her filmography. I was like, oh my god, that's her. I didn't recognize her as an adult, but she's um, I believe 16 when she filmed this. She's
0: 14. She is 14 years old.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously, Colin Farrell is quite a bit older than 14
0: right. in 2005.
1: But that and is an accurate representation, right, of what was yes. happening. So it's, that's what I mean uh, about...
0: No, she was 10. Pocahontas, by their estimates, was 10 years oh, old. Sorry, so they're aging 12, her up for appropriateness. Well, I, I mean, the yes. age gap. which is 14. Being, that is real. correct, yeah. yeah.
1: No, but of course, it's not appropriate at all. And and that's what I mean. Like the whole, But the problematic stuff is built into the film, and it acknowledges it. I mean, the whole <laughs> thing is about white people coming in and invading and taking... And eroticizing. I fashion,
0: and, mm. See, I get that. But I, what I don't understand is why we keep romanticizing Pocahontas. Because we don't do the same thing to Sacagawea, who basically played the same role in American history. So I don't know why, as a general consensus we have come to, is that, hey, these two were star-crossed lovers, and we really like to romanticize these two, oh, even though I that see. didn't happen. I don't know that the film, film is doing I mean? that. I'm not saying that's right, but where I do... There are long, lengthy monologues about how in love they are with each other, which if you're watching this, not from your excellent, astute, critical eye, Norm, because as you're saying this, I'm like, okay, now I get it. But watching this from a plebeian like myself, I'm like, this is a love story, and that's what they've made. And I think what I'm Mm. fascinated about with all the different cuts is because no one knows what this was meant to be anyone making this. Terence Malick didn't know what it was supposed to be. He is famously now enemies with James Horner, who's like one of the biggest composers on the planet because James Horner was trying to score this and he kept taking it back and going, nope, that's not what it is. Chop, chop, chop. And Horner was screaming at him going, it is a love story. Just make it a love story and let me score
2: it like a love story. But yeah. there's different layers of the love story, right? So we have, So, and I will go back, just to rewind. A lot of this is taken from John Smith's Um, extremely uh, suspect journals that he wrote between 1607 and like 1620. And so a lot of that romanticization of Pocahontas, and we should say that that name, Pocahontas, never appears in this film.
1: Yes, deliberately, because it's not her name. It was a name that was assigned to her.
2: She eventually adopts the name Rebecca, um, but you know yes it's not it was never her name it's an, an anglicization of the the group of people she came from doesn't exist
1: so yeah oh, and i Cruises. i screwed up and called uh, i called them iroquois or I called the dialect iroquois earlier that's it's completely wrong it's algonquin and in fact they're trying to speak uh powhatan right which was an extinct language that was reconstructed for a, by a linguistics professor for the actors in the film so yes, the yes. language they're speaking doesn't technically exist either. It's an approximation.
0: It's also how they got all of the indigenous actors involved and why they were able to get a lot of the access to a lot of the filming locations they had is because they promised, hey, we're going to be re-resurrecting these things. There's going to be a lot of film time for this, which also didn't happen, which pissed off a lot of the indigenous communities, including um, one of the actors, Wes Studi, um, who uh, you know him from everything. Sure. He's if you need an Indigenous actor, he's in it. He's also an activist. And he himself has said, give me the footage because I want to do a cut because I know what we filmed and I know what should be on that screen. It's fascinating to me.
2: Yes. This is, a, a, it's a hard film to talk about. And it's, it's hard for me to acknowledge how much I love this. I'm swept away by this film. <laughs> um, but you know, the levels of like romance, of course you're going to, what Malik film, even the thin red line has like a love story that's always yeah. at the heart. And it, but they're, always, they're always complicated. They're always blocked by isolation or by the landscape, which is a, great case for this film as well um but you also have the love story between christian bale's character who we haven't even brought up who is the second half and this is the real person that um pocahontas ended up marrying and was then brought back to england and kind of put on display for the queen I think it would have been queen anne at the time that's a story that the disney version stops you don't we don't
0: see that no no that's the sequel that there is a sequel to pocahontas oh, where that happens. right i forgot yeah.
1: about that it's terrible
0: it's yeah i would imagine <laughs> it is but um I'm finding
2: myself, it's, I'm finding it hard to defend this film. Becky. Would you say you're a Malick? Here's the thing, because I kind of know you well enough to know you don't like Terrence Malick and this would not be the film to watch if you're not a fan of Terrence Malick. To win me over.
0: Um, I like and appreciate Days of Heaven. Um, I really like Badlands. I think Badlands is very cool and very unusual and I'm hoping we get to talk about it in our next season because it is in one of those years because I really like that and I think it's very neat. We will. I find him too ethereal for me and I think that's why. Is it like Lynch gives me, like he's very, he's gone, a similar thing going to Lynch, where you need to experience Lynch to enjoy him. And I don't know if I enjoy the experience of Malik as much as I enjoy the experience of Lynch. That's
2: fair. I read a review of this that referred to it as a Tony Scott movie on Quaaludes. (laughs) <laughs> and we do have an episode in season one of this podcast that is dedicated to 1492 Conquest of Paradise and Christopher Columbus, The Discovery. It's one of our, I think, most hilarious episodes. <laughs> so fun. Um, I will have heated. to look that up because I, <laughs> I have
1: pretty angry fun. memories about both of those films.
2: Oh, we get pretty heated. But uh, I love that Tony Scott movie on Quaalude. Um I love Tony
0: Scott movies, FYI. But uh, that's Ridley. Ridley did that one. Right. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, The Hunger is Tony. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is also very dreamy, gauzy, ethereal, lesbian sex scenes, everybody's happy. Got it. i still a fan of Tony. Um, but
2: <laughs> yeah, if you think about how the, the gestation of this project, so Malik is writing it in the 1970s, around the time that he's producing Days of Heaven. Um, he's writing it during the height of the Vietnam War. He's writing it around the, what was then called the American Indian Movement, which is kind of like the first wave of Indigenous rights. And it takes as we know as, as he's want to do takes then you know four decades or i guess like three decades to actually get this off the ground i'm not saying he was the man to make the ultimate film of this story i'm not saying that at all like i and no. i hope we get a different perspective what i'm saying though is as a film i absolutely am swept away by this and if you take out the historical accuracy the same way that we do with kingdom of heaven and one of the terms that really scott uses which i didn't mention earlier is he refers to his act as creative accuracy so um. i think which is bullshit but like, yeah, of, course a, of course he would
1: of course you would come he up would. with that phrase
2: and Terrence Malick would never bother, he would never deign to say something like that because this man doesn't talk to press and he doesn't give interviews. I was there for one of the very first public appearances he made decades after decades of never being seen. There's a question of, was he even alive? Um, <laughs> I'll go back to that in a second. But like he's really, the creative accuracy is there in this film too, where it's much more, coming back to Norm, Norm's points, about the feelings, the interior monologues, the way that... You know, a bug is flying in the air and then all of a sudden the camera lingers on it, which drives a lot of people insane, including many of the actors. Um, you know,
0: can we just say just for a second that also Christopher Plummer was enraged by him because he got Adrian Brodied in this, where they basically took all of it out, um, and then he shows up at the premiere and goes, Where's my role? But when he was acting on set, uh, he would be like, Oh, can you stop for a second? I see an Osprey. Can we turn the camera to the Osprey? But I like that. I like so that.
2: Um I love that they thought they couldn't, when they're doing location scouting, they really felt they couldn't film in Virginia around the site where this you know these these occurrences took place and then they realized a lot of the Virginia coastline is actually untouched um, and had not the same kinds of birds that they needed but similar birds and there are moments of CGI in this film which blow my mind because they went in and recolored the birds that are now extinct to look like they would have in 1606 like it's exhausting. This is an exhausting film, um, that I find I'm exhausted even talking about, but is worth it for me. Um, I don't know, yeah. like, have you, you've never interviewed Terrence Malick, right, Norm? No, I've, I've
1: interviewed people who've worked with him and they protect yeah. him. They wouldn't. Yes. Um, I've, like, t- uh, the, the most honest conversation I've ever had about Terrence Malick, I think was Martin Sheen, um, when he came through on the walk. With, uh, with Emilio Estevez directing that. And the two of them were doing the, you know, the father-son act that they do in the, in the movie where it just sort of building out on the fact that they don't have any scenes together in the film except flashbacks. And then this is them in the present day. And they're talking about how, um, I think it was Sheen who said, like, basically when you see the two of us on screen, you're seeing our entire history. And Aww. I said, well, obviously he also has that period where he looks just like you in Badlands. And then that got him into talking about Malik a little nice. bit. And it's like, you know, I still see Terry. We talk about basketball a lot.
2: He, so yes, here's And that made me
1: so happy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Terry does love, he, so he is Terry. Um, I yep. had a wondrous Austin like escapade around South by Southwest, but I wasn't there for South by. I ended up staying for South by and it was the year that song to song was right. premiering um, which is a film I really like and no one else does but uh, it was the first on stage conversation that Terrence Malick had ever agreed to do uh, and I think it was very quiet they weren't advertising it but I was there at eight in the morning for a 10 a.m. event just to be like because I was like if you're telling me I get to like being an audience watching Terrence Malick talk about his films I'm going to miss any screening any concert who cares and he was being interviewed by richard linklater and michael fassbender um and he sat for an hour on the stage didn't really say anything nodded his head a lot to the questions and then walked out (laughs) it's just like yeah that's exactly what i expected um song to song he did he didn't he doesn't want to talk about his films. He can't talk about his films. Um, the actors, like Michael Fassbender, talked a lot about the experience of delivering um, this incredible monologue, something that's really important to the film, and then out of the corner of his eye, seeing Terrence Malick and the cinematographer, Lubesky, who's the same cinematographer for this film, start filming a grasshopper, like, in the <laughs> grass. With, and so he knows that, like, the scene that he's giving is not being recorded. And it, watching that film song, to song, there's a lot of, like, crickets and grasshoppers. Yeah. And it's... It's infuriating. I see so much of that in the new world where he was clearly, and I see what you're saying Becky, there's a lot of scenes probably that he was historically researching and bringing in um, academics and bringing in indigenous advisors and they didn't make the cut and so they're angry, but it's much more about the sound of birds and the sound of the grass and the way that these houses and huts are constructed and the gangrene and the sepsis and the, the I can smell this film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I wish you had seen it in theaters. Cause I, I having just watched it same as you Norm two nights ago for the podcast um, on, you know, I can't remember how I got it, but watching on a, a rather large TV doesn't cut it. This is a theatrical experience. This has to be in surround sound. You have to feel like these birds from 1600 are behind you. Um, it's almost like a 4d film for me.
1: Yeah, he that's creates that crazy. He creates immersive experiences, right? I mean, <laughs> no, that's yeah, just no, the reality okay. of it. He he is chasing personally he is always chasing a rapture of some sort. And yeah. whether that is, you know, in a hidden life where you watch a man just simply refuse to be a bad person while surrounded by them and pay for it with his life and you finally understand the thing that he was chasing, which is just being true to oneself and his convictions. It's so simple, and yet you've just spent three hours watching this illustration and elaboration of it. Uh, The New World picks right up where the thin red line leaves off with these glimpses of of the the indigenous peoples in Guadalcanal in in the South Pacific that uh, Jim Caviezel's character is seen frolicking with. He he goes AWOL at the beginning of the film, and that's where we find him. And in the end, those are the memories that sustain him into death, you know, ultimately. This film starts where that stopped, or at least in the the extended cut, we or the, the three hour cut, which I guess we should call the director's cut now. Um, we pick right up with, with just bodies in water, people swimming, people un, uncorrupted by civilization as we, under, as we the Western audience watching the movie understands it. And we're constantly being shown that our perspective is just one perspective in the new world because we know where these stories are going. And that's the thing that I didn't really dig into before everyone in this is going to die horribly. Everybody who is everybody who is on the screen now, whether they go to England and get smallpox, whether they just die of a bad tooth, whether a, 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 a musket ball lodges in their brain, every single one of these people is going to die badly because these cultures have collided. And it's about you know you can use biblical terms I, I know malik does fairly often uh although his speeches the monologues that he gives his characters uh, in voiceover are always quasi religious at best he doesn't really believe in christian iconography or anything beyond some sort of natural divinity uh yeah. of the of the un, of the undisturbed world um so in fact the indigenous characters when we hear um when we hear Pocahontas's monologue, Matawaka's monologue, it's about mother. It's about, it could be the earth, it probably is, but it might be about her mother because we see her mother, as you mentioned, that, that that's there to cloud our perception and make us understand that we cannot understand her. And John Smith's diaries, whose journals are, you know, kind of, they're verbose, they're, 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 Lugubrious, I think, is a, a great word. Where he just goes on and on about the the nobility of the savage, and mm-hmm. it's absolutely wrong. But that's what his perspective was, and we get to share it for a little while. And then there's that scene with the um, the incredibly young uh, and and magnetic Michael Greyeyes, who I'd forgotten was in the film, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just discovering a cannon, and Malik doesn't the the English around him mock him for not knowing what the canon is. And he's like, oh, it's yours, pick it up, try to lift it. And Malik doesn't care about that. Malik cares about his fascination and he's interested in this actor's performance of Discovery. And it's just a three-minute scene in this giant movie, but we know that person inside and out in that moment because we get to see the joy in his face of finding something new and that he's open to it and that he's interested in it. And again, these people will eventually kill him it might not be them immediately it might not be the people he's next to but it's their society and this weapon is the thing that will destroy his people and i don't think the film ever lets you off the hook about that about understanding that what you're watching no matter how romantic and how in love with itself in the moment the movie is it's a tragedy
2: that's there in the love story too yeah because you know we do see the reunite the so john smith and this did i think historically happen um, it's lie Pocahontas is lied to. And it's said that, um, no, this didn't happen. This is definitely part of the, like the fictional, the creative accuracy, if you will. Um, mm. You know, she's lied to and said that he's, he's died on the passage yeah. so that she can move on. And that's how she marries um, John w- Wolf, which is um, Christian Bale's character. But we do see them reunite in, in London, um, John Smith and Pocahontas, and like that. Ah, oh my god, because we've also just been watching like two hours and 45 minutes of a film, so I'm like so invested. And it really demystifies John Smith, like he's just a swashbuckling moron, basically. Like, yeah, he's, he's basically anxious. a
1: privateer, right? He just showed yeah. up on this, on this, he's introduced in irons. He's not a good yeah. person,
2: not a good person. He's trying to find the West Indies, he ends up in Greenland, I think. Um, and they shot that maybe in Scotland, I can't remember where, but uh. Yeah, and, and you it, it demystifies the love story. Like she you see here come full circle too, where she's realizing, okay, well, I was twelve or thirteen or fourteen, based on the actress's age, in love with this man, and now I'm an adult with a child and um it it was all fiction. It was all just circumstance of, you know, the romanticization of that discovery, of that discovery story. I kind of I just I felt very if it was a moment of empathy for me, right? Really, I never thought I'd be able to relate to the character of Pocahontas, but um, <laughs> that is a moment where I did. Where you just like get over an old love, or you get over realizing a relationship that you've um, held up on a pedestal never deserved it in the first place.
1: Yeah, and Bale's character, Rolf gets a lot more screen time in the longer yeah. cuts as well because the version, great. The, the first version I saw, is the. The classic Terrence Malick moment of, oh, that's Christian Bale. And you never see him again. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I, and you, you, know, you get this little moment of, oh, I wonder how long he was around. Because that feels like a, it took a lot of work. And then you see the work in the longer cut and realize, oh, yeah, there was a plan. It's just, it's not what Malick decided to go with in the end. I think he just shoots his options. Um, Jessica Chastain once talked about uh, shooting the kitchen scene in The Tree of Life where she receives a phone call that someone has died. And she said they shot it for two weeks with Malik over her shoulder, operating the camera himself. And she gave a different performance every time because that's what they wanted. And sometimes Brad Pitt was off camera, sometimes he wasn't there at all, and they just kept shooting this take. And, you know, it's like people who start off with um, bullet points for a script. They have the scenes they want. They don't know exactly how it's going to play. They leave it to the actors to improvise it. Just imagine doing that on a grand scale, perhaps for months at a time, and then having all that footage to sift through. I think digital has actually uh, allowed Malik to work faster, yes. both shooting and cutting, because now he's releasing a movie, as you say, like every year or so.
2: He shot um, a million, t- one million feet of footage
0: feet. for the New World. Yeah, One um, of the articles I read said that at one point they had Four head editors and 15 assistant editors working on this, and then as people started to realize what kind of an ordeal this was going to be, they all just left, and then the assistant editors came in (sighs) and then just were doing the work. Like, apparently, it was just an absolute... Think Gong but I mean, it, it, Terrence Malick is an artist. Like, I just have to be clear. He's not a filmmaker. He's an artist. <laughs> I, I think that's what it is. Like, you you have to feel... It's the same as when we were watching um, WR Mysteries of the, of the Organism. Like, stuff just feels right for him. And so, as you watch it, you should kind of feel the same thing. He's looking for a feeling rather than a story. Absolutely. Am I wrong? No, you're totally okay. right.
1: I mean, he is a filmmaker. He's He's yeah. doing this in a medium that he could not be doing it in any other medium. I mean, there are no Terrence Malick, you know, audio CD experiences. There are no Terrence Malick computer games. It has to be a film.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's not a journeyman. He's, he's in, he makes the movie that he, he's passionate about and that's all he makes. He never has to take one for the team to be able to make that movie. For some reason, people keep being like, here, have a bunch of money to read about indigenous building sites for two and a half years. Like, and that's what blows my mind is that people love him and his work enough. Because this doesn't happen. That people would just be like, here, here's some money just to research a project that may or may not happen. That's fascinating. I think
2: a lot of what, he works with a lot of young and up and coming people you know cinematographers for instance like Lubetsky would go on to do Children of Man, The Revenant, Gravity. He's still shooting all of Malick's films. Yeah, he
1: always comes back to work with Malick, which I think yeah, is
2: Yeah, there's very few people who I mean Jack Fisk, the production design on this, down to every nail that had to be accurate to the 17th century. Jack Fisk was, you know, the production designer on Badlands. He has worked on I think every single every single Malick and he's still with him. Maybe not super recently cuz he's retired. You know, he marries Sissy Spacek like the media on badlands like there's such a um, a genealogy here of malik working for the first time in the in the 70s and 73 with badlands he had a short prior to that um and he has fostered careers that have been so important to cinematic history but i do feel like we don't pay enough attention to him currently um a hidden life was wonderful because it was the first time he'd gotten really like stellar critical reviews for a recent production i'm a big fan of night of cups like i said huge fan of song to song mm-hmm. i could probably leave to the wonder but we'll, yeah. we not need to talk about that
1: um, <laughs> to the wonder is the one where i keep thinking well i heard Chestane was cut out of that entirely and i'm yes. like i think i'd like to see that footage i think that might make some more sense
2: Well, that's what's interesting about this is, you know, he's, he's a a man who's older, obviously, clearly, I think he's in his seventies, maybe if not early eighties.
1: Yeah. I think he's like 79 or 80 now.
2: He's going to pass away and he lives on a farm, like outside of Austin, like way in the, like, no, you'll never find him. (laughs) Like (laughs) someone told me the address once. I was like, no one will ever find that. Um, And I'm so curious about the archive, like as an an archivist, as someone who comes from a film restoration background and film preservation, I'm just like, where are these outtakes? Where, where are you storing the million feet of footage? Tell me you have a salt mine somewhere on your property (laughs) that when the estate is settled, like what's, what's, I know that he has, someone told me, so I, I was in Austin, I was dealing with a lot of people who were very close to him, never got close to him myself, but had enough great experiences of people telling me personal stories of Terry. Um, He definitely has a university earmarked that everything is going to go to that poor university because what are they sifting through? Like, (laughs) uh, you know, most university film archives don't take B-roll, but how could you not take Terrence Malick B-roll? Because I think out of the kind of limited, I think he has maybe 12 films, uh, maybe less, like you could probably produce 50 films out of just the footage of Jessica Chastain that was cut from To the Wonder and that's a whole nother film.
0: On, on this note, Alicia, just because we have to wrap up, um, I just want to say which version, if someone is only going to sit through one three hour version, which version do you think that people should watch?
2: I think, unlike Kingdom of Heaven, I'm okay with people watching any version. Um, I don't think the. I haven't seen that hour and 30 minute. So, I mean, if you had to pick one, let's say the 150, I would watch that first. If you have. What I would say is what's most important seeing this in a in a place where you can shut out all else. I was trying to take notes, you know, while watching this, I was my cell phone. I like, don't do that. If if you have any opportunity to see this theatrically, and I don't know where in this day and age that's ever going to happen. But um, if you have that chance, you have to do it. And if you don't have that ability, which would be most of us, find the ability to just sit there and watch it. Do not do all the distracted things. Try to watch it as big as you can on a proper, like that 4K criterion is stunning. Like I would do that. Um, it's not about the version for me. It's about where you
0: are, if that makes sense. Norm, do you have a? Do you want to add on to that, or are you like, nope, that's it? It does
1: make a lot of sense. I cannot imagine anyone watching a Terrence Malick movie on a laptop. I know people do. Yeah,
2: um, you have to. Um, and yeah, it's do, inevitable, I do. right? I
1: mean, it, it's unavoidable if that's what you've got. But it's uh, he makes movies to be lost in. Uh, I would endorse the full three hour cut. It's the movie he ultimately chose to release and wanted to be seen. Uh, the other two versions are included on the Criterion uh, Blu-ray release oh, because really that fun. way, yeah, there are three separate discs, actually, one of each. Oh,
2: that's amazing.
1: And it's great because that way you can understand the pressures he was under and the things he thought were less important at the time, and then you see the full version, and that just makes more sense. It's um, it's not unlike the experience of coming to Kingdom of Heaven after seeing the theatrical cut. You need to know what's not there to recognize and appreciate it when you do see it, although I would also have loved the chance to have seen the the proper version first i just mm-hmm. my line of work i just never get to do that i'm always catching up but yeah i would say the three-hour version like a hidden life like um uh the thin red line his three-hour films seem to sing they they just they have the rhythms right and they make a, an eloquent argument plus you just get Christian Bale in a way that the other two versions don't. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and we all need a little bit more Christian Bale in our life, I understand. He
1: certainly thinks so.
0: That's right. Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again, and I hope uh I hope our little banter was uh, enriched both you and I in our understanding each other's viewing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, I mean, thank you Becky. I appreciate um when we designed this episode, I knew that this was A very difficult task and also assigning (laughs) potentially six hours of viewing whereas you know normally when we do two animated films we can get away with like two hours and ten minutes so i (laughs) just want to thank norm because this was norm was given multiple options of episodes Mm -hmm. and there was one that i thought was best for him that um but i threw this in there just on a whim and i was just so pleased when you're like you're gonna need someone (laughs) i was like yeah
0: we're gonna need someone like you to do this so thank you
1: (laughs) My pleasure.
0: Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, Norm, for joining us. Can you please let people know where they can hear more of you and your excellent takes on films and interviews?
1: Oh, you're so kind. I am everywhere by design. Uh, you can find <laughs> my podcasting work at Someone Else's Movie, uh, which is on your podcast platforms everywhere, where I interview a writer, actor, director, or a nebulous industry figure about a movie they love but had no connection to when it was made.
2: I love that concept. That is brilliant.
1: Other people are doing it now, and they're all doing it less good than me. That's, that's all I can say. Uh, because you inevitably get, an, it's an advocacy program. I started out because I was tired of all the, all the other podcasts that were about how terrible movies were. We, ha- we yeah. know, we know. Uh, and I wanted to do something where you got to stand up for a movie that you love. And it turns out that getting someone to talk about something they love is actually the direct line into who they really are. So,
0: And it's funner to, honestly, for me, it's funner to listen to. I want to hear about what people love rather than what they don't. Do you know what I mean? Because hopefully then I'll love it too. And often you will convince me that, yes, I will love it too. Thank you. More things I can love. That's the goal. On this
2: podcast, We. it's not that we always love everything, but one of the ways that this podcast has been important for Cam, myself, sorry, Cam, myself, and Becky is that we do not insult the films like I am so tired of those like making fun of films and there's bad films we talk about all the time but we try to find an inroad to at least express some passion about it
1: that's how you get people to watch things too I mean it's just it's about making sure that the good stuff gets talked about um and the other podcast I do is now what which is the now magazine podcast where every week we push out a story about the news and culture we think you should know. So we've done episodes on, a lot of episodes on COVID. That's how it started. But now we're sort of trending away from that and trying to find reasons to be happy. So in a way, that's an advocacy show as well. <laughs>
0: Excellent. And you can join us next week as we watch two movies I am very passionate about. Alicia will be sitting out because they are two of the more disturbing horror movies you will see in your time. We're watching The Descent and *Noroi*. That's coming up next week. Oh boy yeah nope I'm nope I'm not doing it (laughs) thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite if you enjoyed the show please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform find us on Facebook Instagram Twitter at Hollywood Suite Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s 80s 90s and 2000s always uncut and always commercial free Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on 4 HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and today featured Alicia Fletcher and Norm Wilner as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.